You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. The following sermon is from our series in the book of Revelation. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. At our many diadems, and he has a name written on that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, And Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who were sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in, who in his presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're nearing the end of our studies in Revelation. And if you're new to the church or haven't been with us through this series, then here's the bottom line. Here's what Revelation is all about. Revelation is a book that is intended, it's actually intended to comfort those who, let's just say in the last week, have found that nothing else but the return of Jesus can comfort them. Some of you might have had a week like that. And if it wasn't this past week, then for sure you've had weeks like that before where what normally might bring you some comfort or some relief just with the burdens of your life, with the sufferings that you're enduring, with the hardships or the conflict or the issues that you're facing at home or at work or even in your own head, when none of those comforts do anything for you and all you can say is, you know what, I just need Jesus to come back. I just need Jesus to come back and make everything right. I need Jesus to come back and renew my life and renew all things. You know, it's just okay. In fact, it's really important for us to be able to admit that sometimes we feel so overwhelmed, we feel so burdened, we feel so trodden upon by the circumstances that we face that nothing but the return of Jesus can bring us hope, can bring us relief, can bring us comfort. Revelation was written for people who feel that way. And so as we've gone through the book and looked at all these weird signs and symbols and metaphors and images, I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. The forest of Revelation, the main point of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Jesus is going to win. In fact, Jesus has already secured victory for himself and for all who are connected to him by faith. And so when you're having a really, really rough week, when you're having a rough month, When you feel like you've had a rough life, for crying out loud, and the only thing that can bring you comfort is 
the truth that Jesus is one day going to return and make everything okay again, then in, in those moments, revelation can be a great help for us. It can be a balm, so to speak, that brings healing into our lives. That's what I want us to really see again this morning as we near the end of our studies. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to encourage followers of Jesus, the church of Jesus, to wait for him patiently in a hostile world. Remember way back in chapter 6, verse 10, we saw a vision of the saints before the throne of God, and they were crying out, how long? How long, O Lord? And in a sense, the rest of the book of Revelation from that point on lays out for us how God is going to answer that question, that cry, that plea of his people. It tells us what God will do and how he will orchestrate the story of this world for his own glory. And the book is intended to draw all of us to orient our lives, to frame our lives around the worship of Jesus. Jesus is on the throne. He is the central figure in this universe. And Revelation exists to call us back to that memory, call us back to that truth again and again, so that we will stop centering our lives on things that can never really satisfy and actually begin to frame our entire stories, to orient our entire lives around Jesus as he is seated on the throne. The book, as we've seen, is structured as a series of cycles that remix these main ideas over and over using different images and with increasing intensity as the book progresses. So we've seen seven seals. We've seen seven trumpets. We've seen seven bowls. Each cycle laying out for us how history will play itself out and how it will end with Jesus' return. So at the end of each of those cycles, in chapter 7 and in chapter 11 and in chapter 16, we saw the return of Jesus portrayed. And each time it's portrayed with growing intensity and increased detail. And here in the second half of chapter 19, the passage we have this morning, we see portrayed for us the second coming of Jesus in the most intense and vivid imagery so far in the book. These verses, along with the first part of chapter 20, which we're going to study next week, close out the cycle that we might call the cycle of the dragon, the dragon and the beasts. We've seen hideous figures. We've seen a lot of smoke and fire and swords and plagues. We've seen how the evil one will try to destroy God's people. And now, in these verses, we see God's victory. We see the return of the king, the second coming of Jesus. And so maybe for the first time in the book, these verses are almost entirely future-oriented. We've seen that most of Revelation is about the period between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. But these verses, and especially the second part of chapter 20 and all of chapters 21 and 22, are about the future. They're about what is yet to come. And so we begin to move forward chronologically this morning. These verses point us toward our great hope. They point us toward the blessed appearing of Jesus of Nazareth, King Jesus, who will conquer and who will rule all things well. And so let's summarize these verses in this way. Here's the main point for you this morning. At the end of the age, King Jesus will return and make everything right. That's really the point of all of Revelation, but it's especially the point of these verses. At the end of the age, King Jesus will return and make everything right. Two parts for you today, the return of the king and the victory of the king. The return of the king and the victory of the king. And in verses 11 through 16, if you'll look there with me, we'll see the return of the king. Look at verse 11 of chapter 19. 
John sees heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And by the way, that's supposed to be read like, whoa, a white horse. I probably needed to be muted right then, but it's intended to be an intense thing. Whoa, oh my goodness. A white horse appears in heaven. And on the horse is a rider. And the context here is the spiritual imagery of the final battle between the armies of Jesus and the armies of the dragon. If you remember back in chapter 16, we saw the forces of the dragon are assembled to wage war against God. And here these verses are expanding on what we saw in that prior cycle. But if you read through 11 through 16, you'll see very importantly that the vast majority of these verses are simply a description of the rider of the white horse. They're a description of the resurrected and returning King Jesus. And this is one of the culminating passages of the book. This is what we are all waiting for if we're followers of Jesus Christ. It is the moment of truth, the moment when Jesus will make everything right. And typical for John in this book, the images and the language that he uses to describe Jesus at his coming are the means by which he teaches and encourages us. So Revelation is not a didactic book intended for the mind, so to speak. It's, it's a symbolic book, a book filled with images that's intended for our creative people and our, each of our creative parts of our, our brains. And each of these images could be an entire sermon, really. But I just want to look at a few with you. Look at how John describes Jesus sitting on the white horse. The one sitting on it, he says, is called faithful and true. Now, those are very powerful and prominent biblical words. And as you read them, they should remind you of God's faithfulness to his promises. His name is faithful and true because the true God, the living God, is a God that always does what he says he is going to do. He always keeps his promises. And if you don't know the story of the Bible, then fundamentally the story of the Bible is simply this, that this world has been marred and broken by human rebellion against the king, but God is going to restore it. God is going to heal this world. God is going to make all things new. And throughout the Bible, he promises his people again and again and again in various beautiful ways to do that. And so what we see here is God fulfilling his promise. He's promised to remake this world. He's promised to bring peace. He's promised a great marriage supper for himself and his people. He's promised to vindicate the oppressed and the persecuted and the poor from evil. And he's presented here as the one who does just that. He is faithful. He's also true. That title, true, is used of the resurrected Jesus here to contrast him with the evil one, the devil, the dragon, who scripture tells us is the father of lies and was a deceiver from the very beginning. The work of the devil is the work of deceit. But the work of Jesus Christ is the work of truth and integrity. As John tells us in his gospel, Jesus is the way, the truth, the truth, and the life. So because he is faithful and true, the text tells us he can judge and make war in righteousness, not in unrighteousness, in righteousness. He brings good and necessary justice with absolute perfection and holiness. He is faithful and true. John also says that his eyes, verse 12, are like a flame of fire. This echoes the similar description of him back in chapter 1. And this description is intended to evoke in our minds Christ's role as the one who, as the Apostles' Creed says, will come to judge the living and the dead. 
The point is that in Jesus' sovereignty and wisdom, listen, there is no act, no word, and no thought in the history of the universe that he does not see about and know about. There is nothing that can escape the vision of King Jesus. Nothing that can escape his good and just judgment. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and that means that no one, none of us, no matter how powerful or manipulative we are or deceptive we are, or, uh, a bit, how able we are to deceive others, none of us can deceive King Jesus. None of us can hide from King Jesus. This means that all of the evils and atrocities committed in this world are known by Jesus and will be judged by Jesus, as we've seen in prior weeks. Jesus sees all things and knows all things. Nothing escapes him. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We read also at the end of verse 12 that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, this is a strange phrase, but it makes sense. When you understand the power of names and naming in the ancient world, in the Old Testament in particular, to know a name, and especially to name someone else, means to have control over the one named. Which is why Adam and Eve are given the commission in the Garden of Eden to name the animals. That's a way in which they exercise their kingship over the world. You also see this in good literature, particularly I'm thinking of Harry Potter this morning. In uh, Harry Potter, that is good literature. How dare you laugh at the idea that that's not good literature. Particularly in Harry Potter, um, the bad guy, the chief antagonist is a guy named Voldemort. But in the wizarding world, everyone is afraid to speak his name, right? He's known as he who must not be named. But there's one person who freely and consciously speaks Voldemort's name, and it's Albus Dumbledore, the head wizard at the Hogwarts School for Wizards. And that's very intentionally done by J.K. Rowling. Voldemort is the only one, excuse me, Dumbledore is the only one who will use Voldemort's name because it's a way of Rowling communicating that Dumbledore is not afraid of Voldemort. Voldemort does not have control or power over Albus Dumbledore. And so, You'll see Dumbledore repeatedly, almost in an offhanded way, using Voldemort's name. And everyone around him, you know, just sort of shrinks away in horror. But Dumbledore isn't afraid. That gives you maybe a little bit of insight into the power of names. And the point of Revelation 19 is this. No one uses the name of Jesus Christ in a way that they have power or control over him. In fact, no one even knows the fullness of his name. What's being said here is that Jesus is not under the control of any mortal. Jesus is absolutely sovereign. Verse 16, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So that no one can know his name means that no one can grasp him in his fullness. No one can comprehend the depth of his character. No one can master Jesus. His ways are not our ways. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, when he sort of runs into an intellectual roadblock as he writes that letter, he puts it this way in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given gifts to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is the one who sits upon the white horse and will one day return to execute his perfect and good judgment over the world. Here's what Revelation is telling us, friends. This is the real Jesus. Jesus is going to return, and he will return with this kind of power and glory and majesty. And so the question for you is this. Does your view of Jesus have room for these images and descriptors? And the reason I ask that is because all of us, myself included, have a tendency to truncate Jesus. We all want to fit Jesus into a box of our own devising so that we are more comfortable with him. We all have a tendency to use this sort of language to want to name Jesus and to control Jesus. Now, we see this on large-scale platforms. Political parties of all persuasions in the Western world love to play the Jesus is on our side trump card. And you tend to do the same in your life, if not so crassly and overtly. You know, we often fall into the trap of thinking that we can pick and choose what we like and what we will accept about Jesus. We treat Jesus as if we're like texting him and we can just hit the do not disturb button when he says something that makes us uncomfortable or that we don't like. And Revelation is communicating to us that you can't do that. You either get all of Jesus, the fullness of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, or you get none of Jesus. But you can't treat Jesus like he's a Chinese buffet line where you can pick the part that you like and just ignore the parts that you don't like. Some of you like Christmas Jesus, sweet little baby Jesus. You love those stories. They make you feel nice and warm on the inside. Some of you, perhaps, like Jesus as a teacher and a spiritual guide. That's the way you see him. Some of you like Jesus when he speaks against Caesar, as he does in Revelation. Some of you like Jesus when he calls out the religious people. Some of you like Jesus when he cares for the poor and the weak. Some of you like Jesus because he forgives. But again and again, Revelation draws us to the sole acceptable solution that the scriptures teach. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is all of those things and infinitely more. And you cannot pick and choose what you're going to follow with Jesus. You can either orient your life around him as the king who will return one day soon, or you can leave it alone. But Jesus may not be divided up into pieces. He will either have your full worship or he will have your rejection. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright in one of his books writes this. Christian worship declares that Jesus is Lord. And that therefore nobody else is. What's more, it doesn't just declare it as something to be believed like the fact that the sun is hot or the sea wet. It commits the worshiper to allegiance, to following this Jesus, to being shaped and directed by him. That is what Revelation drives us to. That's what we are to see here at this vision of Christ's return. Will you ally with the real full, whole Jesus or not? The return of the king begs that you answer that question in your own life. We also see the victory of the king, beginning in verse 17 
and going on through the end of the text. We saw a meal last week in the first part of chapter 19 at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And in that meal, Jesus, the bride, is front and center. And here we see another meal. It's not nearly as pleasant, but Jesus is front and center here as well. We read that there's a great supper of God where birds will eat the flesh of the foes of King Jesus. So the point is that Jesus will defeat all of his enemies, both small and great, verse 18. Further, we read that he captures and destroys the beast and the false prophet by throwing them into the lake of fire, verse 20. That is, Jesus will topple those systems and structures in our world, like the state and false religion, that sh- and show them to be powerless before him at his return. That's the point. So this is fairly straightforward here for the most part, especially for Revelation. But one thing I want you to notice that I just loved this week, and I don't think I'd ever seen this before, but I saw it in studying this week. Notice that the armies assemble, and the battle lines are drawn, and the horses are ready, but there's really not even an actual fight. Did you notice that? Jesus just destroys all with the sword that comes from his mouth, the first 21. You know, that seems kind of anticlimactic. We want a Braveheart-style battle here where the foes charge into each other with power and frenzy and ferocity. But we we don't get that. What we get instead is Jesus merely speaking a word and crushing all of his foes and making all things whole and good again. Think about it. The same Jesus that simply spoke and the universe came into existence will speak again and renew the universe that has been tarnished by evil. And just as a brief aside by way of application, can I tell you this? We do not live in a dualistic universe. What does that mean? Well, there's a tendency, I think, in our culture and even among some who are followers of Jesus, to see God and Satan, to see good and evil as two independent powers who fight it out and will fight it out in the end. It's a very famous view in the history of philosophy and even more famous in pop culture. Um, This is Star Wars theology. There's the good side and the bad side, the light side and the dark side. They're relatively evenly matched, although usually the dark side's a little more powerful, and it's up in the air. Who's going to win? This is yin and yang. Good and bad really are a part of one another. It's a dualism. And, and the Bible knows nothing of this worldview. Revelation knows nothing of this worldview. That's not reality. Here's reality. The dragon is not independent of God as a force in the world. We've seen in Revelation that all that Satan, Satan does, all that he does is actually under God's sovereign allowance. There's the creator, and then there's everything that is not the creator. That's the distinction. All Jesus will do at the last battle is speak a word, and it is all over. It really isn't even a fight as much as it is a declaration of his supreme victory and power and glorious, beautiful goodness. So Jesus will return and he will make everything right. This is 
This is the message of these last chapters of Revelation. And let me tell you, friends, this is in the Bible to instill in each one of us a real, deep, abiding hope. To instill in us a real hope when we've had the weak that we would like to forget, when we feel powerless to overcome the forces that seem to be opposed against us. Revelation tells us what's going to happen because it wants us to trust in this good news. Listen, Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to win. The Lamb of God will triumph. Good will prevail. Can you hope in that? Can you, can you rest in that good news by faith? You've been given a spoiler here. Spoiler alert. This is how it ends. It's going to work out. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the king. Christ has come. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Jesus is going to make everything right. Everything. Believe this. Listen, Jesus will end the oppression and the enslavement of human beings made in his image. Jesus will end the death of children because of war or poverty or unclean water or disease. Jesus will end every ounce of corrupt power brokering in the halls of power. Jesus will end the murder of unborn innocent children. Jesus will end prejudice, classism, and racism. Jesus will end miscarriages of justice that benefit the wealthy and connected and harm the weak and the marginalized. Jesus will end natural disasters that seem to randomly destroy and devastate. Jesus will end state-sponsored persecution. Jesus will end unjust wars. For those of you who can for those of you who can feel the curse of a broken world in your physical bodies, you're breaking down with age or with sickness. You hurt and you ache. You feel ill and you don't seem to get better. Jesus is going to make that right. For those of you who have been cheated and lied to and stolen from, Jesus will make it right. For those of you who have been betrayed by spouses or friends or family, Jesus will make it right. For those of you who have been abused or molested and it has haunted your story, Jesus will make it right. For those of you who are helplessly trapped in a cycle of family or relational dysfunction, Jesus will make it right. For those of you who have outlived your own children and had to grieve their loss, Jesus will make it right. For those of you who are alone and abandoned, Jesus will make it right. For those of you who are mentally ill or handicapped or have been betrayed by the chemical functioning of your brains, Jesus will make it right. He will make it all right because he has taken the evil and the pain of the world upon his own shoulders in the cross and paid our debt with his own blood. And he will return to finish and consummate his work for us there. Jesus will make all things new. The great Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who I've quoted before, particularly from his just powerful 
book, Exclusion and Embrace, comments on Revelation, particularly on these verses. And I want to just close, and I really am closing this then. I want to close with reading this quote for you. Here's what Wolf writes. The most surprising thing about Revelation is that at the center of the throne, holding together both the throne and the whole cosmos that is ruled by the throne, we find the sacrificed lamb. At the very heart of the one who sits on the throne is the cross. The world to come is ruled by the one who on the cross took violence upon himself in order to conquer and embrace the enemy. The lamb's rule is legitimized not by the sword, but by its wounds. The goal of its rule is not to subject, but to make people reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, 5. With the lamb at the center of the throne, the distance between the throne and the subjects has collapsed in the embrace of the triune God. If that can fill your hearts with hope, friends, then you've not yet understood the beauty of the gospel. Can you understand it this morning? Christ has come. Christ has risen. Christ will come again and make everything right. Let's pray.